Okay, cards on the table. In this six-part series on understanding Jesus, we've been focusing on a cluster of passages in the Gospel of Mark. And now, we're in a position to see why. Understanding Jesus is a lifelong project, of course, but if you're going to boil it down to six parts, rather than bouncing around from Matthew to Mark to Luke to John and back again, it makes sense to zero in on one gospel. Not least because the gospel writers tend to build narrative power through plot and repetition and the flow of the storytelling. It's like a composer creating a symphony. If you want to understand Beethoven, you could take snippets or sound bites from various pieces, but on balance, it's better to listen to an extended section of a single piece, to hear the refrains, the ebb and the flow, the way tension builds, the motifs that appear and then reappear and then culminate. Fair enough, but why the Gospel of Mark? Well, Mark is the oldest Gospel of the four, and while that doesn't make it the best or the most illuminating, Mark does have a kind of raw, unvarnished immediacy, a simple, direct, elemental power that makes it hard to beat. And so, if you're going to choose one Gospel, you really can't do better than Mark. But why this section of Mark, chapters 8 through 10, First of all, it's worth remembering that the numbers, the chapters and verses, were added much later, hundreds of years after Mark was written. But in any case, what's going on in this section is pivotal to the overall story. The first half of the Gospel portrays Jesus healing and teaching and confronting death-dealing powers, and the second half focuses on Jesus' passion, his suffering and death, and ultimately the empty tomb. But this section, the one we now call chapters 8 through 10, this is the pivot point, the turn from those opening stories to the final approach to Jerusalem, to the cross and the tomb. And as he makes this final turn, the first thing Jesus does is prepare his disciples for what's coming. As we've seen all along in this series, Jesus sets out to disabuse his followers of our mistaken ideas about the Messiah and about supposed greatness, and to introduce us to an entirely different vision of what salvation and deliverance and true power is really all about. Jesus casts this vision three times, first in Mark 8, then again in Mark 9, and now for a third time in Mark 10. Each time, the disciples don't get it. And each time, Jesus follows up with a clarifying teaching. Mark is saying, not directly, but through the structure of the symphony, first of all, that this is really, really important. When something happens three times in a story, that's shorthand for, listen up, this is crucial. And second, Mark is saying that this new vision is not only important, it's difficult. It's difficult to grasp and difficult to accept for the first disciples and also for us. Jesus is trying to tell them, to tell us what he's about to do and how we should understand it. 
what the cross means, what the heart of his mission really is. This is it. Jesus is boiling it down, bringing it home, distilling it into a single symphony with three movements, Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, trying to help us understand. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part six of our six-part series on understanding Jesus. And in this episode, we reach the third movement in the symphony, a movement that culminates with Jesus declaring that he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. What does he mean by that? Good question. And to answer it, we need a little backstory. For roughly the first thousand years of Christian history, the prevailing view of how to understand the cross, and therefore how to understand Jesus, was as part of an epic struggle between God and the devil. According to this view, the cross is a kind of lure, a way of tricking the devil into thinking he's won by torturing and killing God's beloved child, but then turning the tables on the devil by rising again from the dead demonstrating once and for all that not even the devil's best weapons, torture and death, can vanquish the god of dignity and life. Theories with this basic outline are today grouped under the name Christus Victor, or Christ the Victor. You can find a more recent, familiar version of this theory in C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Edmund, who represents sinful humanity, signs his life away to the White Witch, effectively becoming her hostage. And then Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, strikes a deal with the witch, giving his life to save Edmund's. The witch thinks she's won, but then Aslan rises from the dead and rallies the forces of good to victory. Aslan gives his life as a ransom, and as I say, this basic idea was the prevailing way the cross was understood for the first millennium of Christian history. There were some, however, who over the centuries became uncomfortable with this theory, including a brilliant European monk named Anselm in the 11th century, who eventually proposed an alternative way of thinking about the cross that became the prevailing view for Christianity's second millennium. The discomfort with the Christus Victor theory primarily came down to the way it seems to put God and the devil on something like an equal playing field, as though the devil has rights God is bound to respect. Paying a ransom to the devil struck many as unseemly and out of place, and so Anselm proposed another theory of the cross, excluding the devil and casting the conflict strictly in terms of God and humanity. Humanity's sin, Anselm argued, is an offense against God's honor, and because divine honor is infinite, the recompense for the offense or the payment required to make things right is far too steep for finite humanity ever to repay. Sin, in other words, puts humanity hopelessly in a kind of debt. Not to the devil, but to God. 
And so, for this reason, says Anselm, God becomes human as Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus gives his life to pay the debt. Because Jesus is human, because the life he gives is a fully human life, the payment counts as given on behalf of humanity. And because Jesus is divine, because the life he gives is a fully divine life, the payment is of infinite value, and so is able to cover the debt caused by sin. There's still a kind of ransom being paid here, we might say, but not a ransom to the devil. For Anselm, the ransom is paid to God. This theory is sometimes called the substitutionary theory of the cross, the idea being that Jesus substitutes himself in humanity's place, paying the price on our behalf. Ask a hundred Christians today about the meaning of the cross, and most of them will say something along these substitutionary lines. After a thousand years of Christus Victor, we've now had about a thousand years of substitutionary theory, and so that's the lens through which most Christians today understand what it means that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. But what did Jesus think? Did he have in mind something like Christus Victor, a ransom paid to the devil? Or was it something more like Anselm's theory of recompense and substitution? a ransom paid to God? Or did Jesus have in mind something else entirely? This brings us back to the Gospel of Mark, chapters 8 through 10, and to the moment when Jesus actually says that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you know how to listen to a story. And Mark gives us several classic signals that this section of the gospel should be taken as a whole, not chopped up into separate pieces. The first signal is the storytelling strategy of bookends. Mark bookends this section with two stories of Jesus healing a blind man, giving each of them sight. And then, between these two healing story bookends, Mark gives us three episodes of Jesus attempting to open the eyes of his disciples with respect to the true meaning of his death and resurrection. Three times Jesus announces his coming trial, three times the disciples drastically misunderstand, and three times Jesus responds with a corrective, clarifying teaching. As we've seen the first time through this cycle in Mark 8, Jesus rejects the power of military conquest and domination, and instead takes up the posture of the suffering servant, drawing on the ancient tradition in the prophet Isaiah. And the disciples don't understand. And then, the second time through the cycle, in Mark 9, Jesus redefines greatness as becoming a generous servant of all, even and especially the left out and the left behind, those we might be tempted to consider adversaries, and those who are most vulnerable and most in need. And still, the disciples don't understand. Finally, in the third time through this cycle, in Mark 10, James and John come to Jesus and have the audacity to ask him if they can spend the hereafter sitting in seats of honor beside Jesus in his glory. 
The request is the picture of spiritual hubris. Jesus demurs, but the other disciples are nevertheless jealous and angry with James and John for even asking. And so Jesus, no doubt exasperated, calls them all together one more time for a teaching on servanthood. We can imagine him saying, For the love of God, listen. The Romans may understand greatness in terms of brute force and tyranny and sitting in places of honor, but we do things differently. As I've taught you many times, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be servant of all. Don't you see? We come not to be served, but to serve. We're not about ascending into the power of supremacy for the sake of domination. On the contrary, we're about descending into the power of servanthood for the life of the world. And then he says, at just this moment of emphasis, for the third time, this emphasis on servanthood as opposed to hubris, at just this moment, Jesus declares that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a ransom is a payment, that's true, but the point of the payment is freedom, liberation, to set someone free from bondage. And we've just heard three stories about how the disciples are in bondage to prevailing conventional ideas yesterday and today about victory through violence and conquest, about greatness as a form of domination, about being first of all right? Three times Jesus explains that this is not God's way, the way of life. And three times the disciples don't understand. But by the third time, it's clear that their misunderstanding isn't just a form of ignorance. It's almost willful. They are clinging to ideas of the Messiah as a dominant military conqueror, clinging to ideas of greatness as conventional power and prestige, to ideas of outsiders as adversaries, and now, this third time around, to ideas of insiders as entitled to special privileges, sitting beside Jesus in glory, earthly hubris, and now, as the coup de grace, spiritual hubris. cling to these ideas of domination, these ideas of counterfeit greatness and insider privilege and spiritual hubris, we actually cling to prison bars from the inside of a self-imposed cell. To the extent that we hold tight, we are held hostage, but not by the devil and certainly not by God. We built these prisons. We are the ones holding on. And so Jesus, seeking to wake us up and lead us out of these cells, which are locked, after all, from the inside, shows us a radically different way, what he calls the way of servanthood, of being servant of all. And not servanthood just when it feels good or just when it's convenient or comfortable, but rather servanthood precisely when it's difficult, even when the conventional forces of the powers that be oppose it. 
Jesus will follow and embody the way of servanthood even to the cross to show once and for all that the way of servanthood, the way of love and generosity cannot and will not be defeated even by the most disheartening, cynical forms of betrayal, cruelty, and death. The powers may strike it down, but it will only rise again. The way of love is the way of life. The child of humanity, Jesus says, comes not to be served, but to serve. And then Jesus adds, to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, to pour out his life as a testimony, an icon for what it looks like to serve with equanimity and courage in good times and in bad, even in the face of fierce opposition. He's not saying that everyone who serves will end up being crucified, but he is saying that a life of service will include suffering. Indeed, every life will include suffering, and that this suffering is an opportunity for poise, for courage, and in that sense, for yet another kind of service. This way of life is the profound meaning of the cross. Along with his whole ministry, Jesus' pilgrimage to Golgotha vividly illustrates a life of servanthood, of humility and love, and his resurrection vindicates that way of life, even as it reveals its invincible power. To show us this, to both demonstrate servanthood and liberate us into it, Jesus is willing to give everything. What should we call such an act of generosity? Call it a gift for the sake of freeing humanity from bondage. Or, if you have a poet's heart, call it a ransom for many. A giving of his life so that we might, at last, live. So that we might be healed. So that we might open our eyes and see. This is no payment to the devil, nor is it a payment to God. It's a wake-up call, a gift given to us, and a powerful invitation to step out of our prisons, to be released from our bondage, and to live a new life. The sheer repetition in the story creates an accumulative power. Jesus rejects the supposed greatness of military conquest and self-promotion in Mark 8, the supposed greatness of social pecking order prestige in Mark 9, and the supposed greatness of spiritual pecking order prestige in Mark 10. In place of these self-centered illusions, these prison bars to which we so tenaciously cling, Jesus calls us to let go and to set out on the humble, down-to-earth way of love and servanthood, seeking to be last of all, not first of all, 
privileging the most vulnerable, honoring the outsider, making peace, opening our hands in generosity and joy. The truth is, we hold ourselves hostage. But Jesus declares, rejoice, the ransom is paid. Open your eyes, you're free to go out into the world for the love of the world, servants of all. To live this way with wisdom and insight is to understand Jesus. To live this way is what understanding Jesus is for. Strange New World is a SALT Project production written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And feel free to drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.